Welcome to today's message, The High Calling of an Elder, based on 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5. First section, The Gold Standard. Spiritual leadership. Is it about being in charge? Has it to do with being able to call the shots? Is it about manipulating or intimidating others, wielding the power to make them cower and cringe with a single memo from the desk of the CEO or tweet or other disparaging social media post? The Bible understands spiritual leadership to be something far different. In his book Spiritual Leadership, J. Oswald Sanders wrote, One definition of leadership is the ability to recognize the special abilities and limitations of others, combined with the capacity to fit each one into the job where he will do his best. Here the emphasis is not on one's own power or ability, but being able to appreciate and serve others, guiding them into a configuration where each can share their talents meaningfully. Today, partly in response to requests from our own church elders, we're following up last week's message on church membership in general with one looking at the role of eldership in particular, how it's a high and noble calling worthy of aspiring to. Now, before you tune out thinking, this doesn't apply to me, consider this. When the apostles Paul and Peter describe qualifications for eldership, what they're really describing is the ideal or goal to which every man in the church should aspire. And pretty much all of it can apply to a mature Christian woman, too. If you are truly wanting to become a mature follower of Jesus, a disciple worthy of honor as such, you need to be reminded of these qualities and characteristics. This is the gold standard when it comes to how a follower of Jesus should be, not just the limited role of a select few. What woman wouldn't want a husband that displays these qualities? What company wouldn't be happy to have a person like this on its payroll, nay, its board of directors? There are three key passages in the New Testament that go into some detail about what should describe an elder or overseer or bishop or pastor. The titles are used fairly interchangeably. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5. Rather than go through the lists in sequence one by one, I find most adjectives can be combined under five broad headings to keep it alphabetical. Reference, relationships, reputation, restraint, and reward. First of all, the elders' reference. To what do we refer to get our bearings? Are we just awash in a sea of chaos? Or are there compass points by which to chart our course? The following illustration may date me and you, but see if you can complete this sentence. The beginning of the long dash following 10 seconds of silence indicates, well, how many of you know what comes next? Indicates 1 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. The official time signal is the longest running feature on CBC Radio, dating back to the 1930s after it took over from Canada's first network, CNR Radio. Yes, that's the railroad. For decades, people all over the nation set their timepieces by the radio's daily signal. 
It was especially important for mariners and surveyors who needed accurate timing for navigation. In 1975, the National Research Council developed the world's first high-accuracy primary cesium clock. And today, we just look at our smartphones, which are tied in somehow to atomic clocks. The point is, we have a reference by which to gauge our own timing. Something that's sure and stable and reliable, no matter whether the planet spins a little faster, as it has been doing lately for some reason, or slower. For Christians, Scripture is that point of reference, as interpreted by the teachings of Jesus Christ. So Paul highlights the importance of having a good grasp of doctrine when he writes to Titus uh, 1.9-10. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. Satan is fundamentally a liar and loves to put his own spin on things, questioning what God has revealed, closing up to Eve and asking, Genesis 3.1, Did God really say... The world has all kinds of what Paul terms rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers. You can find a variety of conspiracy theories and misinformation to suit your tastes. Church leaders and mature Christians need to be grounded in and familiar with scriptural revealed divine truth. Hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, as it has been passed on to you from those of a previous generation extending all the way back to the first eyewitnesses. Peter could assert, 2 Peter 1.21, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As Paul reminded Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's a blessed gift to us to be our prime point of reference. Useful for not just elders, but parents and group leaders to be teaching and training those in their care. Other qualities the apostles mention relate to this having a reference. Paul emphasized an elder is not to be quarrelsome, 1 Timothy 3.8. The Bible becomes the arbiter of truth for us, not how loudly we can shout. It's our authority, so we don't have to come across in an authoritarian, bossy manner. Paul also warns in 1 Timothy 3.6, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Get more steeped in scripture as the years pass and It will help you not become conceited, thinking overly much of yourself. The Holy Spirit reminds us of our growth areas, where we still fall short and need to mature more. The leader is like a radio station's clock, back when people set their watches by the station's time signal. The leader sets the pace for our own standards of conduct. So the spiritual leader needs their own point of reference in God's word. Next, the elders' relationships. 
Sections in all three passages about church leaders are devoted to an elder's relationships. In both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the overseer or elder is to be the husband of but one wife. This is not referring to marital status, but to moral and sexual purity. Literally, it means to be a one-woman man, someone whose wife can count on him to be faithful, devoted, dependable, focused on loving her and promoting her happiness and well-being. Now, who doesn't want a man like that? Another area of relationship is that of children. 1 Timothy 3, 4-5 He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? very true. If you can learn how to manage your offspring, it stands you in good stead to be able to provide leadership in the church, or in the corporate world for that matter. In the family, we learn how to deal with different temperaments, competing wants, conflicting schedules, having to make do with limited resources and still be fair to all, and so on. In Titus, Paul describes Titus 1.6, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. It's so true. Want to know what a dude's really like? Study how he interacts with his kids. Is he short with them, demanding, quick to get upset? Is Christian faith rubbing off on them, at, at least in the long run? Does he set a good example at home in the sight of those he's in closest contact with? Do they see Dad reading his Bible and praying, saying grace, being enthused about church life? Faith is both caught and taught. What about relationships with those who are not immediate family? Both 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, Paul insists elders must be Hospitable, verses 3 and 8, respectively. Literally, a lover of strangers. Do we take time to greet and get to know those who aren't in our immediate circle? Do we invite new people over after church when we can? Do we invite non-church-going acquaintances to church and a meal after? Or even just get together for a meal? That's pretty user-friendly evangelism right there. The Apostle, Paul, the Apostle Peter focuses more on the leader's manner of relating to others. 1 Peter 5, 2. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Hmm. Are we willing overseers, or is it just on our gotta-do list? Are we eager to serve, or reluctant, begrudging? And is our style domineering, lording it over those entrusted to us? That's not being a good example. Nor is it the style of Jesus. Once the disciples got into a spat about which of them was the greatest, this whole issue of domination and lording it over was on the table. But Jesus corrected them. Luke twenty-two twenty-five to 27 He said, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and 
Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Serving, not domineering or manipulating or one-upping, needs to characterize our relationships. For our Lord chose a posture of ministering to us, serving us. In our relating to others, one way we can serve them is by seeking to develop those people for whom we're responsible. Thomas Monaghan was founder, president, and CEO of Domino's Pizza. From 1970 to 85, Domino's grew from a small, debt-ridden chain to the second largest pizza company in America, with sale of over $1 billion in 1985. But is it really just a pizza company? Is that its real product? When asked to account for the phenomenal growth of the company, Monaghan explained, I programmed everything for growth. And how did he plan for growth? Every day we develop people. The key to growth is developing people. Hmm. Not special cheese, not a tasty crust, not fast delivery schedules, but people. People are the key to all effective leadership. Next section, the elder's reputation. Benjamin Franklin once said, It takes many good deeds to build a good reputation and only one bad one to lose it. A good reputation is more valuable than money. It's priceless. So it's no wonder reputation features prominently in the Apostles' list of qualities for church leaders. 1 Timothy 3.7 He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. When church leaders fall into disgrace, it reflects badly on the whole church and does not commend Christ to our peers. What are some things that contribute to good reputation? 1 Timothy 3.2 Now the overseer must be above reproach, literally unseizable. You won't catch him in any wrongdoing. Titus 1.6 An elder must be blameless, literally unaccusable. You can't pin any accusation that sticks, sort of what used to be called a Teflon man. Titus 1.7 continues, Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. Respectability is related to reputation. Being respectable is mentioned in 1 Timothy 3.2. Titus 1.8 adds, Being upright and holy. Do those words accurately describe how others view us? Not everyone is upright. Many just follow the path of least resistance. To be holy means being set apart or dedicated to God's purposes. Are we actually set apart or going with the flow? There's a bumper sticker that reads, Don't follow me, I'm lost too. Motion does not always mean purpose. Don't just follow the crowd because they may not know where they're going. See also part one, reference. Those who are endeavoring to live with scriptural standards will often find themselves going against the flow of culture. 
On this matter of having a good testimony with those outside, John MacArthur notes, A leader in the church must have an unimpeachable reputation in the unbelieving community, even though people there may disagree with his moral and theological stands. How can he make a spiritual impact on those who do not respect him? Next section, the elders' restraint. Reference, relationships, reputation, that brings us to restraint. Much of these positive qualities is due to a leader's being able to hold back the wrong influences and passions that would sidetrack him or her. There's a cluster of qualities here relating to self-discipline. 1 Timothy 3.2 Now the overseer must be temperate, self-controlled, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle. Temperate, literally lineless, can mean alert, watchful, diligent, clear-headed. Self-control is also mentioned in Titus 1.8 and is part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. One might hope that a leader that's supposed to be responsible for others in some position of control would begin by having control over themselves. Not given to drunkenness is echoed in Titus 1.7. Remember that back in these times, water was not usually as pure as it comes to us today, so drinking wine was very common. A leader needs to know their limit when it comes to intoxicants. Their judgment shouldn't be clouded by alcohol or other substances. Not violent, but gentle. Can we restrain our temper and not become physically or verbally abusive? Jesus described his own manner this way, Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. A little aside here, a good book to read is Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, O-R-T-L-U-N-D. I've listened to the audiobook version twice through recently, and it gives great insight into the, into the gentle, humble heart of our Lord. When people have dealings with you, do they come away feeling like they've been stiff-armed, coerced, dominated? That's not gentle. And discipline in Titus 1.7 sums up this area of restraint. If we would be worthy of governing others or leading in some capacity, we need first to be able to govern ourselves, hold ourselves back from wrong poles. General Eisenhower would demonstrate the art of leadership with a simple piece of string. He'd put it on a table and say, pull it and it will follow you wherever you wish. Push it and it will go nowhere at all. It's just that way when it comes to leading people. They need to follow a person who is leading by example. End quote. Not by violence or a domineering attitude. Uh, section, the elders' reward. I let me come to the reward that the Lord promises to leaders who serve well. Some are now, some are later. First, let's rule out what's not motivating the godly overseer. 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, not a lover of money. Titus 1.7, not pursuing dishonest gain. 1 Peter 5.2, not greedy for money. Remember one of our first observations, a good reputation is worth far more than money. It's priceless. The false teachers in Paul's day were milking their hearers and 
using the gospel as a means to make an income. They were mercenaries, not missionaries. Unfortunately, many preachers of the so-called prosperity gospel today have focused more on accumulating wealth than on tending the flock. And the cause of Christ has fallen into disrepute as a result of these um, televangelist schemes. So, what are legitimate motivations for spiritual leaders? Titus 1.8 Rather, he must be one who loves what is good. Not loving money, but loving what's good. Another motivation is to be classed in the company of other honored church leaders. 1 Peter 5.1 To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Notice Peter calls them fellow elders. Imagine, classed alongside the apostle himself. That's an honor. He says, one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. A little word also is significant. He's implying the other church elders will also share in that coming glory. And remember, at the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter had already been an eyewitness of Jesus' supernatural glory, so he had a good idea what he was talking about. In the light of that glory, our shiniest earthly trophies, by comparison, will pale and fade away. But note especially 1 Peter 5.4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the New Testament world, crowns were given as marks of victorious achievements, kind of like medals and trophies are awarded at athletic events today. But this glorious, splendid crown is one that will never fade away. It's good for eternity. What greater honor could one wish for? What more enduring one? In closing, an elder's high calling involves these five broad categories. Reference, relationships, reputation, restraint, and reward. Determining to become qualified to be appointed to leadership in the church is a noble, honorable thing and is something to which every man in the church ought to aspire just by virtue of being Christ's disciple. Seek to learn BEAN quality leadership. Yes, B-E-A-N. Haven't heard of that before? Well, let me explain. True leaders always rise to the top, especially in difficult times. They're like beans in a jar of peas. When you place peas and beans in a jar and shake them vigorously, the peas always settle to the bottom, while the beans always come to the top. So it is with godly men. They can never be held down when shaken up. If they truly have leadership qualities and a love for God, they will always rise to the top. Now here's Gary Lyle, our elder board chair, with a brief afterword addressed specifically to our congregation. God bless you.